Welcome to Grace City. Good to be with you. I'm Charles. Uh, we're going to get stuck into that, pa- uh, that passage in a moment. Before we do, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, uh, who didn't count equality with you as something to be claimed, but made himself nothing, uh, taking the form of a servant for us. We thank you for his death uh, on the cross, and we pray that as we reflect on these truths that you would transform us. Uh, Teach us to think like Jesus, to have the same mindset as him. Uh, We pray, make us a humble church, God, that we would count others as being of greater value than ourselves. And we pray, do this uh, through your word and by your spirit. Amen. Um, True humility is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, True humility is a beautiful thing. Uh, I want to illustrate this uh, by telling you about two men. Uh, They happen to be boxers, and they happen to be two of the greatest boxers who ever lived. Uh, The first uh, is Muhammad Ali. Uh, now, Muhammad Ali, he was once uh, catching a plane. He was uh, flying to go and defend his heavyweight boxing title. Uh, and while he's on the plane, uh, the plane hits some turbulence and the um, captain uh, is, uh, he says, you know, everybody put your seatbelts on, turbulence coming. Now, flight attendants go around and they're just making sure everyone's got their seatbelts on. Flight attendant comes past Muhammad Ali, sees that he doesn't have his seatbelt on. So flight attendant turns to him and says, uh, you know, would you mind putting your seatbelt on? He says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She comes back and says, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> it's, it's, a good, it's a good one-liner. But it highlights the foolishness of thinking that being able to box well means that you don't need a seatbelt in a storm 30,000 feet in the air. Uh, It lacks humility. Let me tell you about another man. Uh, This man wasn't flying on a plane. He was riding on a bus. Um, He was sitting up the back by himself. While he's on the bus, uh, three young men kind of come on the bus and go up to him and start start a fight with him, basically. Uh, They start to insult him. Uh, Now, this man doesn't respond. doesn't do anything. Um, But then uh, they keep going. Uh, And then he just calmly stands up and as he's walking off the bus he just without saying anything he just hands him a business card it says Joe Louie boxer Uh, as in uh, heavyweight world champion for 12 years running he just hands him a card Um, a man who chose to be dishonored and shamed out of kindness for those who mistreated him Um, I'm sure there was more to these men uh, than what I've made out. But I think you can see that there's, like, there's a real beauty to true humility, isn't there? And there's a beauty to it, valuing another more than oneself, uh, choosing to be dishonoured, insulted, out of love uh, for one another. Um, I reckon most of us can see the um, beauty in humility. Uh, you know, you'd say, yeah, there's something that I would want in my life. Um, what's interesting is that people haven't always thought this way about humility. Uh, And so if you go far far back enough in history, what you'll find is that uh, at a certain point, people didn't think humility was a good thing, a beautiful thing. They actually thought it was a bad thing, something to be avoided, um, almost as a character vice rather than a virtue. Um, Just a little example. Let me tell you about the Delphic Canon. Uh, Delphic Canon comes from about uh, 500 BC, and it lists out what all the Greeks thought were um, all the virtues. There's 147 of them, things that people should aspire to be. Um, 
bunch of great stuff in there, by the way. This is some of it. Control yourself. Uh, help your friends. Nothing in excess. Respect the elder. Respect yourself. Don't trust fortune. So, lots of good stuff, uh, and it goes on and on, uh, but one thing is missing. Humility. Um, 147 character virtues, but humility is not on that list. Um, it was actually looked down on as being a character flaw, something you want to avoid. Um, and so the question is, how did humility go from being something kind of bad to be avoided to something that I think most of us think is actually something quite beautiful, something good? Uh, back in 2003, uh, there was a team from the history department at Macquarie Uni here in Sydney, uh, and they tried to answer that question about humility, you know, uh, using history. How do we go from it being a bad thing to a good thing? Uh, what they found is that the idea of humility being a good thing, um, a beautiful thing, can be traced all the way back to one man and his legacy, Jesus Christ. Um, it's just history. Uh, John Dixon was one of the historians on that team from Macquarie Uni. Uh, this is how he puts it. The modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the particular impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. This is not a religious conclusion. Macquarie is a public university uh, with no division of theology or even religious studies. It is a purely historical finding. Can you see what this means? Um, if there is anything in you that loves humility, that finds it beautiful. Um, history says that that's only because of the radical life and teachings of Jesus in the first century. And every time you see beauty in humility, you're experiencing the legacy and impact of Jesus Christ. And the passage we have in front of us today is perhaps the most influential and quintessential passage on humility and the humility of Jesus. You see it there in verse 3. Paul says, In humility, value others above yourselves. That's what this passage is about. And what Paul says there is it just, it was absolutely unprecedented uh, in the ancient world. And so it's not an overstatement to say that if you love, if you find something beautiful in humility, in large part, it's because of this passage, that verse. Uh, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And what Paul is going to say in this passage is that it's impossible to understand humility without the incarnation, um, which is the reality that God came down, became a man. Uh, incarnation means to take flesh. Uh, that's the reality we celebrate at Christmas. And Paul says uh, we can't understand humility without the incarnation. Um, but more than that, Paul connects the humility of Jesus to the possibility, the potential of us growing in humility. Um, he connects our humility to Jesus. Uh, and you see that verse 5. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Uh, it's like Jesus is the spring, the fountain from which all humility flows. And so if you want to grow personally in humility... Go back to the source. Start with Jesus. Now, don't hear me saying that Christians are the only or somehow necessarily 
the most uh, humble Christians. We make our fair share of mistakes. What I am saying is that Jesus holds the secret to true humility. Uh, And uh, the closer you get to him, the closer you get to experiencing, tasting true humility. So let's jump into this passage. Uh, Two headings. Uh, We'll think through the humility of Jesus. We'll unpack a few things. uh, And then uh, we'll think about what humility means for us. Hopefully we'll land a few things. So the humility of Jesus. uh, And Paul's going to unpack this from verses 6 down to 11. It's kind of like a little hymn about Jesus. And Paul starts verse 6 by saying, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I think it's worth unpacking what that means. I don't think it's immediately obvious what it means for Jesus not to consider equality with God as something to be used to his advantage. What does that mean? Um, Other translations say that um, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped uh, or something like that. So what does it mean to grasp or to use something to your advantage? Um, The underlying Greek word there, it's actually a technical term. doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, And it specifically refers to when someone has a right to something, but then they come and claim their right to that thing. And it's the coming to claim the thing that this word is trying to capture. So just imagine you and I go out for donuts. We go out for donuts, we order six because we like donuts. You eat three, I eat two. We all know who the last donut belongs to, don't we? It's mine, it belongs to me. Um, Now, I could come and claim my right to that donut by grasping it and using it to my advantage. Um, Or I could leave that donut there and not claim my right to it. Now, it's still mine, um, which is why you would ask me before taking it and having four. um, I can pick it up anytime I want. But as long as I leave it there, I'm not claiming my right to that donut. Um, What Paul is saying here is that Jesus did not claim his right to equality with God. Now, he does have a right to it. It belongs to him. Jesus is equal with God. There's no doubt about that. What Paul is saying is that he did not claim his right to equality with God. He didn't grasp it. Or use it to his advantage. But you might be wondering, what on earth does that mean? I'm glad you asked, because we do actually want to be quite careful here about what we're saying. Uh, So what does it mean for Jesus not to grasp, to use uh, equality with God to his advantage? Um, I think Paul explains what he means by what comes before and what comes after. Uh, So notice what Paul says before this. He says, Christ Jesus... Being in very nature, God didn't count it as something to be used to his advantage. Now, I'm going to suggest that being in very nature, God isn't actually the best translation there, but I want to show you how you can work that out for yourself too. Uh, So if you have an NIV Bible there, um, you should have a little footnote that says this can also be translated as Christ Jesus being in the form of God. Uh, When you see a little footnote like that, it can be helpful to compare it 
with other translations and go, what's going on here? So if you go to like the ESV or lots of other translations, they all go with, he was in the form of God. Uh, in this case, I think that's actually the better translation. But it's trickier to make sense of. What does it mean for Jesus to be in the form of God? Um, Greek word there is morphe, uh, which is where we get the word morph from. Um, and it refers to the shape, the appearance of something. It's not saying that Jesus only appeared to be God as if he weren't really God. Um, it's like me saying that I have the form of a man. That's because I am a man. And what Paul is saying, he's, he's speaking about Jesus being in the form of God, uh, and it's particularly the form that he's highlighting. He is God. Uh, and so I take it that what he's talking about is Jesus being the glorious and majestic radiance of God. Um, think with me about when Isaiah saw the Lord. If you go back to Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated high and mighty, seated on a throne of glory. And when Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, I'm a dead man. If you go over to John chapter 12, John actually says that what Isaiah saw was the, the glory of Jesus. He saw the glory of Jesus. And that is the form of Jesus before he became a man. Glorious, majestic. If you saw him, you would fall down and you'd say, woe is me, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead woman. The crazy thing and the whole point of this passage is that Jesus actually gave up being in the form of God to take a new form. Paul describes this as emptying himself, making himself nothing. Have a look from verse 6. Uh, just look out for the repetition of form. So Christ Jesus, being in very nature, which we've said is in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature, same word, the form of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, again, we need to be very clear on what Paul isn't, isn't saying. Paul's not saying that he gave up being divine, as if he emptied himself of divinity. That's not what he's saying. What Paul's saying is that he gave up being in the form of God to take a new form. What does that mean? Very simply, it means that when Jesus came to us, he didn't come with all the glory and the majestic radiance that he has had from all eternity. He didn't come with that. He didn't come with thousands upon thousands of angels singing, holy, holy, holy. He didn't come with might and power. He came in the form of a servant being made in human likeness. It's as if the king leaves his palace, takes off his royal robes and he takes the rags of a beggar and walks among his people. Now he's still the king, but he doesn't assert his right to royalty. He humbles himself. That's what Paul means 
when he says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be claimed, used to his advantage. And when Paul says that Jesus took the form of a servant, I think Paul's actually taking us back to a passage from the book of Isaiah. Uh, We read it before. I want to read a few sections again. As we do this, look out for the language of form and being a servant. Uh, I'll start from Isaiah 52. God speaking here. Behold, my servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And uh, Paul says this is Jesus, the king of glory, and he gave it up. He makes himself nothing. He didn't come with any form or majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we would desire him. Grace City, this is Christmas. When God showed up, nobody noticed Nobody cared. And when God came to his own people, they didn't recognize him. Just a little baby lying in a trough in a small room, Mary Joseph. The one who is the very glory and radiance of God, the one who burns brighter than the sun, lies there as a little baby. No majesty, no beauty, and nobody noticed or cared. The angels, they're singing glory. A few wise men, they came from the east, but otherwise, nothing. Uh, Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to be claimed. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. But according to Paul, this is only the start of Jesus' humility. Have a look at what he says next uh, from verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A couple of thoughts on this. Uh, First, just notice that Jesus becomes obedient to death, which is not something that anyone else can say. See, death is not a matter of obedience for us. It's a matter of necessity. But for Jesus, death is not a necessity. It's a matter of obedience. And he submits himself willingly. Um, Just notice how crazy it is that the very glory and the radiance of God would come and willingly submit himself to death. Um, This is what the historian Tom Holland says. We preach Christ crucified, St. Paul declared. Unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. He was right. Nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of Paul's contemporaries. Jews, or Greeks, or Romans. The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel Christ was. 
In the ancient world, it was the role of gods to uphold the order of the universe by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Hopefully you're starting to see just how radical and unique the humility of Jesus really was. Um, But let me ask you this. Do you think it mattered that Jesus was crucified or simply that he died? Because notice, Paul says here that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Does it matter that it was on a cross? Um, A few years ago, uh, one of my lecturers from Bible College published an article. uh, And in it, he points out that Paul doesn't actually speak about the cross specifically all that much. Um, Paul actually only mentions the cross ten times across all his letters. It only comes up in five of his 13 books. Now, Paul speaks about the death of Jesus all the time. It's basically there in every single chapter. But Paul only mentions the cross a few times, which means that whenever Paul mentions the cross, he's doing it very intentionally. So why would Paul mention the cross here? This is 10% of the references to the cross in Paul right here. Uh, My lecturer, Philip Kern, um, he points out the goal of crucifixion wasn't just death. It was shame. Um, And so he points out, uh, if the goal of crucifixion was just death, then it is wildly unresourceful. It is wildly inefficient. It takes several soldiers, several days to supervise a crucifixion. Um, He says this, A number of soldiers were assigned for an extended period of time to oversee the death of a criminal. Were the goal merely death, a single soldier with a sword would suffice. Crucifixion was accepted, though widely detested, for specific types of crimes and a distinct class of criminals in order to achieve particular results, death only being one of them. It indicates the lowest form of degrading death, the total public humiliation of its victim. The aim wasn't just death. It was to completely erase the memory of this person by so utterly shaming them to the point where even their own mother would be ashamed to be associated with them. And Paul says that's what Jesus came to do. Let me ask you, what would you have to do to bring so much shame on yourself that even your own parents wouldn't associate with you, perhaps even after you'd died? In the ancient world, that's what crucifixion did. How does God the Father respond when he sees his son crucified? Verse 9. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you see why this passage almost single-handedly changed how the world thought about humility? Um, Does it change how you think about humility? Um, 
just before we move on, I just want to point out one thing. Notice that these verses are in the past tense. God has exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. He already has it. And so I take it that these verses, they're not just a description of the end when every knee will bow before the name of Jesus. Um, He already has the name that would bring people to bow their knee before him. Um, And so I think these verses are a description of what's happening now. And so let me ask you, where are you at with Jesus? Have you bowed the knee yet? Has your tongue acknowledged that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father? If not, why not do that today? That's the humility of Jesus. Uh, But I want to kind of unpack and land a few of those things uh, by spending a bit of time thinking about what humility means for us. Uh, And I want to start by perhaps clarifying what humility really means. See, uh, if you go to a lot of the kind of psychology or the business worlds, they all actually speak about humility, um, but they speak about it being an accurate self-perception. It means knowing yourself accurately and positioning yourself accordingly. Uh, That's what humility means for a lot of people. And it's worth saying that that idea, that's not unique to Jesus. That's not unique to Christianity. Lots of ancient philosophers, uh, they spoke about the importance of knowing yourself accurately. Um, There's something else that makes the humility of Jesus fundamentally distinct. Um, True humility means far more than just accurate self-perception. True humility means being willing to forego honour and endure shame. I say that because both Paul and Jesus lived in what's often called an honour-shame culture. Uh, In an honour-shame culture, much of life revolves around kind of gaining and keeping honour for yourself, uh, your family, whilst at the same time avoiding things that bring shame. That's true for the cultures that Paul and Jesus lived in. Now, in those cultures, uh, you know, Greek, Roman, whatever, um, it was important to have an accurate view of yourself so that you were honoured in proportion to your achievements. Um, and you didn't want to like, have an overly inflated view of yourself because that meant you were trying to take more honour than you really deserved. Um, and so, in all of this, though, the goal was still to gain and keep honour for yourself and your family. Jesus does something far more radical than simply having an accurate view of himself. Jesus actually forgoes, gives up the honour due to him, and instead endures shame. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to be claimed, used to his advantage. He does deserve the honour for being equal with God. He does deserve our praise and glory. But Paul says that he didn't count that as something to be claimed. He didn't claim the honour due. That's what we see in the incarnation. Uh, Because when Jesus came down in the form of a servant, he wasn't given the honour due to him. In fact, he willingly chose to be ridiculed, mocked, and chose to be crucified. But it's important to ask why. Why would someone forego the honour they are due? Why would someone willingly be shamed? 
Uh, See, the Bible never says that we should want to be shamed. Shame is not a good thing in and of itself. Uh, Shame is never a good thing in the Bible. So why did Jesus choose to be shamed? Uh, Why should we choose to be shamed? Um, Humility always has a purpose. It has a goal. See, the secret to true humility is that it's actually less about how you think of yourself and more how you think of others. Notice what Paul says, verse 3. In humility, value others above yourselves. Think it through with me. Do you think Jesus ever thought less of himself? As if one day he decided that he actually wasn't God after all. That he wasn't worthy of being praised and glorified. Never. Never thought that. So what made him humble? He valued others above himself. That's the mindset of Jesus. The secret to humility is it's less about how you think of yourself, more how you think of others. Um, Listen to how John Dixon puts it. Humility is not a private act of self-deprecation banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements and so on. I would call this simple modesty. But humility is about a redirecting of your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial or structural, for the sake of others. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. Humility is not at all about whether you're honoured or shamed. It's actually about how you can honour others, value others. Um, Can you see how freeing this is? Because it doesn't matter whether I'm honoured or shamed. The thing that matters is how I can honour you, value you. It frees you from the constant anxiety of having to prove how valuable you are. Because as far as you're concerned, you already value them above yourself. That's true humility. Um, This changes how you walk into a room or meet someone new. Um, See, think with me about when you meet someone new, you walk into a new context. If you're anything like me, you're going to run what I'm calling a value diagnostic. Um, You know, it's where you pretty quickly, you work out where you sit in relation to everybody else. And it comes with like a certain set of criteria. Everyone has a different set of criteria. Maybe it's career progression or attractiveness. Maybe how many kids you have, what stage you're at in a relationship. It can be anything. Financial, physical, educational, even spiritual maturity. But all of us like to pretty quickly work out where we sit. And where do we want to be? At the top. Um, There's something in us that wants to be the most valuable person in the room. But Jesus gives us an entirely new criteria for working out someone's value. I should count someone as more valuable than myself if they are not me. As long as someone is not me, regardless of anything else, I ought to value them more than Value them more than myself. That's what Paul says. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves. There's no value diagnostic where I come out on top. There's no criteria where I win. 
Um, humility literally means to lower yourself. It's radically other person-centered. But as you're hearing all this, um, it could be that a question is just starting to come into your mind, which is, who will honor me? Who will value me? Will anyone seek my interests? Now, hopefully, if you're hanging out with a bunch of humble people, then you're all looking out for each other's interests. That's kind of cool. Um, I think there's also a deeper reality going on. Um, as I read this passage, I kept finding myself asking why. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he leave his glory, take the form of a servant? Why would he humble himself to death on a cross? Why would he forego honour, endure shame? And at one level, Paul doesn't really tell us. He doesn't specifically say, Jesus did this so that, and then give us a reason. But he does give us a little clue, I reckon. Um, it's back in verse 4. We'll pick it up from verse 3. He says, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In the next verse, he describes this. He says, have the same mindset as Christ, which means that, that that's how Jesus thought. Um, and so I take it, when Jesus became a man and went to the cross, he didn't do it looking to his interests, but to yours, to mine. Now, you might ask, well, what are my interests? What, 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 did he, what did he do? Once again, Paul doesn't really tell us. But if we go back to Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, which is all about the one who came in the form of a servant, we get a pretty clear answer. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed grace city jesus left his glory and endured shame so that your sins your iniquities might be removed that you might experience peace with god that you might be healed by his wounds all of that says at least two things to us. Uh, first, it tells us that we're more flawed and unworthy than we really think we are. Um, our sins, our iniquities testify against us. And acknowledging this is really the first step to, to humility. Um, lowering yourself isn't so hard when you see how low you really are. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. If anyone would like to acquire humility... I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realise that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> That's the first thing we need to hear. We're far lower than we think we are. There's also a second thing to hear, which is that we've also been exalted 
far higher than we could ever imagine. Think about what Paul says. He says, value others above yourselves. And he says, that's the mindset of Christ. Which means, Jesus valued you above himself. If your trust is in him. The, the, the king of glory emptied himself for you. Died for you. What other honour could compare with that? What could exalt you higher than that? Um, this is why you can forego honour, endure shame for us. It doesn't matter if people honour you or shame you because you've already been honoured by the King. It doesn't matter if you're shamed. He endured the shame of the cross for you. And he did it so you could have peace with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank, we praise you for Jesus, the one who left his throne of glory to take the form of a servant. It's only in him that we can experience peace with you. And so we pray, teach us to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. Teach us humility. Make us a humble church that we would value others above ourselves. We pray that we would do this resting secure in the knowledge that Jesus has already sought our interests and due the shame of the cross for us. Um, and we pray it in his name. Amen.